My name is Scott Challoner, and you are listening to the Leaders' Council podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. As regular listeners of this program will know well, and part of our mission here at the Leaders' Council is to bring you a variety of differing perspectives on leadership. And today, that mission takes us right into the heart of AstraZeneca with Elizabeth Bjork joining us on the program. Elizabeth heads up AstraZeneca's late-stage development within cardiovascular, renal and metabolic diseases, known jointly as CVRM, and is responsible for late-stage clinical development, large outcomes programs, major global filings and health authority interactions. And her singular focus is to actually get life-changing medications to patients as early as possible in order to improve their quality and longevity of life. Um, Elizabeth, very warm welcome to you. And by all means, thank you for joining us on today's show. Thank you, Scott, for having me. It's, it's absolutely great to be here and, and having this conversation with you. Yeah, it's an immense pleasure for us having you uh, join us as well, Elizabeth. Um, you, of course, in your line of work, are a physician and scientist, and you work for 15 years in clinical practice as an endocrinologist as well. So I suppose it's fair to say, then, that your work as a doctor very much actually supports and informs your work as a scientist studying disease and looking for solutions. So would you say that that prior experience sort of helps you in your current work? Uh, absolutely. I would say that it's, it's fundamental to what I'm doing. So I spent 15 years taking care of, of patients, mainly with diabetes, but also other kinds kind of, of diseases. And it informs everything that, that I'm doing. So my statistics are not just numbers. I see real people with real problems in front of me when, when, when I'm thinking about, about what kind of medicines to develop and, and how, how to do that better. And uh, yeah, so it really does inform everything I, I do. Absolutely. And uh, part of our mission, sort of, as I mentioned earlier on in the program, is to really sort of project a variety of different perspectives on leadership within the, uh, the wider world. And obviously, I think a lot of people do have their own ideas of what a great leader within the science and research community looks like. People might think of sort of Einstein style characters. But for you, um, as somebody who's sort of really in that mix, um, what are some of the most important attributes of great leaders within science and research? I think the way I think about leadership within uh, research and development is around both curiosity and collaboration. You have to be curious and you have to really be interested in sort of science. Uh, And then you need to, going back to this patient thing, you need to see that patient that you want to help in front of you. And you need to think about how can I use sort of the the um, the um, great science uh, and learn more around that, that, and then also collaborate with others in order to make sure that this great science can actually get to the patients in the end uh, and help all, all these patients that I have in, in in front in front of me, and that, that's a little bit how I how I think about how I think about sort of the the leadership in this very, very complex area. So there are people that are really good at sort of the science, and there are people that are really good at also taking care of individual patients. But to be a great leader in the field where, where I try, try to, to work, you need to do both. You need to be curious about, about the, the science, 
And then you need to move from treating patients one at a time, which I used to do when I, I was in the, in the clinic, into thinking of them as millions. So nowadays, I pride myself with treating millions of patients instead. And I can't do that on my own. And then we, then we have to collaborate with lots of people with different skill sets in order to make that transition from great science to real medicines to patients that need them happen. Absolutely right. And as leaders as well within the profession, of course, we sort of leave our mark on others. We inspire others, don't we? Um, is there anybody that sort of yeah. you've encountered, Elizabeth, in your career that you feel has maybe had sort of a positive impact on you in your own development, just to sidetrack? Yes, I think the, having role models is very, very important. And I think this skill set of being interested of something into the details, which scientists often are, but then also being able to move up to a higher level and see that broader impact and, and make use of that. That's a skill set that, that's not that common. Uh, and there were a couple of, of individuals early on in my career that really taught me how to do that, how to connect the different parts. And, and I've had that with me uh, all, all along. But then I'm also very, I'm still, even if it's close to 20 years since I, I left being patient, I'm still inspired by the individual patients that I met in the clinic mm. and how they... Uh, they are living with their diseases 24-7 and they need to find solutions there. And I'm only there for a very short time to sort of help them and, and to, move, to move that forward. Uh, and I'm inspired by, by sort of how they took that on. And, and I learned quite a bit from, from that as well, which I still use in, in my leadership role. So you can say that I learned leadership from many of my patients. Absolutely. And something that we talk about an awful lot here at the uh, the Leaders' Council as well, and has been brought up on this very show before, actually, is sort of female representation in uh, leadership positions. And just looking at sort of UK government data from uh, 2019, uh, women actually at that point in time made up only sort of 24% of the core sort of STEM workforce in this country. Um, how, therefore, do you think we sort of encourage more women to sort of get involved in STEM as a sector and therefore bring that next generation of female leaders through within the industry? It's, of course, an important topic to, to discuss. And I choose to see it much, much more broadly than just women and, and female leadership. Mm. To me, this is a question around diversity and inclusion and to really understand that in order to be successful with what I described in the beginning, taking the science, collaborate and sort of bringing, bringing it forward, you do need to have lots of different thoughts and diverse opinions coming into, into that. And you need to, in your heart, believe that that's important. So this is not about sort of being fair, making sure that everybody can contribute, etc. You really have to believe that in order to be successful, you need all these diverse inputs and, and, and things like that. And if you then take that to the next level, you realize that, that this is not about coaching 
women to behave like men in the work environment. This is about having this very broad approach to, to diverse thinking. And it could be about gender, but it could be about all other diversity that, that you, can, you can think of, of as well. And um, going back to, to sort of role, your role model points before, I, I do have a, a very early um, female role model. And she taught me exactly that. And she was very colorful and, and uh, she used a lot of makeup as, as work and, and very different compared to who I am as an individual. But she took the entire her into work and she was, was not at all like uh, I had imagined a, a sort of a, a male position or something like that. She took all of her into, into work and she was brilliant. And, and I learned that specific thing from, from her. It's about being you. It's about bringing the best of you in, into your work environment. And it, it's about creating an environment where everybody else can do that same thing instead of uh, trying to fit girls and women into sort of the, the more male-dominant world that, 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 that we have created. And I think if we, if we, can, if we can do this well, we, I'm absolutely convinced that, 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 that girls and women will um, enjoy the fascinating world of, of technology and science and, and leadership and, and all the things that, that I'm fortunate to be able to do every day at work here, here at AstraZeneca. But it starts mm. from, from that cultural shift. It does not start with, with the individuals, individuals per se or, or the girls or the women themselves. Yeah, I think that's very right. I think what you mentioned there about authenticity and being able to express yourself, sort of contribute your own uh, sort of contributions to the uh, the discussion, that is hugely important. I think that's absolutely right. Um, and just moving on now, Elizabeth, to sort of your kind of individual area of expertise, because I do want to, uh, to talk about that. Um, you work in diabetes and you are incredibly passionate about that work. Is there any particular reason that you were sort of drawn to kind of studying that particular condition? I think I'll mention two parts. Uh, one is the science per se, uh, uh, and it is complex. Uh, there are very many reasons why people develop diabetes, type 1 and type 2, uh, and uh, lots of contributing factors. So, so from a purely scientific perspective, it's an interesting area to try to understand and, and, and do better in. But it's also the, the uh, people part. Uh, so people that suffer from di diabetes, they live with this all the time. And in everything that they are doing, they have to factor in the fact that they have diabetes. And you as a physician or, or someone working with them, uh, you are only there for a very short time. And you need to give them tools so that they can manage their day-to-day -day activities. Uh, and they need to be then leaders of their life and, and, and take accountability for what they are doing. And you can give them little tools to do, to do that. Uh, and uh, these two things together, the interesting science part, but also the, the, the people impact and how this chronic disorder impacts your entire life if you have diabetes. That's what um, made, attracted me to, to, to the area from, from, from the beginning. It also gave me an opportunity to 
meet people I didn't know existed. Because if you think about what kind of people you surround yourself with, they are often quite similar to yourself. And and, and seeing and getting to know thousands and thousands of, of individuals with diabetes, they, they are they're all very different. And, and I could learn so many different things from them, going back to, to our discussion around diversity and, and how you can grow as an individual by, by listening to people and learning from people that are di- different than, than you are. So that's how it all started. And, and when I then moved into AstraZeneca, I took that notion of, of working treating one patient at a time into really trying to make a difference for millions uh, instead uh, into heart. And that's what I've been spending my, my last 20 years on. Absolutely. And certainly on the other side of the uh, the Atlantic in the uh, the United States, um, type 2 diabetes is certainly becoming more prevalent in younger people. Um, do you think, sort of based on your experience and your research, that diabetes is going to become an increasing problem in the future? And is there any hope that we'll actually have a sort of solution, a cure to that? I mean, the, the, you're, you're absolutely right. And then not only in the, in the US, but also in the UK and Europe, mm. uh, diabetes is increasing in, in its prevalence. And in, if you think about it, seeing obese uh, youngsters or, or even children, you do that nowadays. And, and maybe we didn't do that when, when, when we were younger. And this is one reason also why, why diabetes is in, in increasing. The increased prevalence of, of obesity and uh, the fact that, that maybe all of us, and including them, then young individuals are not exercising uh, as much as, uh, as we should, um, um, etc. So yes, diabetes is increasing, increased prevalence, the increasing problem, and something that that we need to to try to uh, address. And there are many reasons for why people are developing uh, diabetes, and diabetes is also linked to other kind of of disorders. Mm. It's not an easy fix to sort of cure this, but something that I, my team, AstraZeneca, is very committed to and passionate about trying to to change the course of, because it's a real problem. It is exactly right, and um, sort of cardiovascular, renal, and metabolic diseases as a sphere are a growing issue, I suppose, um, aren't they, as well? We've talked about diabetes as a condition there very specifically. Um, obviously we're seeing diabetes sort of growing in its prevalence, but do you predict that sort of cardiovascular, renal and metabolic diseases, sort of other conditions within that sphere, do you think that they're going to sort of become more prevalent themselves as well? I mean, yes, I would say yes and no, and I would try to explain what, what, I'm, what I mean with, with that. I mean, we are also making real progress from a science perspective and from a, uh, from a drug development perspective and society perspective to understand the drivers behind cardiovascular disease and how the links are between hypertension and diabetes uh, and NASH, uh, obesity, chronic kidney disease, heart failure and all of these disorders. And we are developing treatments and, and guidelines for, for how to better sort of uh, address that across, which means that, that there are much, much better treatments now 
than, than maybe 20 years back. Having said all of that, it, it's still a, a problem and, and, uh, and still a growing problem. Uh, also because um, we are all getting older, we are living longer treatments in other areas like in oncology, infections and, and respiratory disorders are getting better, which means that, that people live longer and, and then get an increased risk of also developing cardiovascular disease, this, diseases of, of different kinds, despite the improved treatments that, that, we, have, that we have sort of developed. Uh, so this is something that we continue to research and, and try to understand what's driving the, the residual risk, if you like, in, in cardiovascular disease, the, the risk that, that exists after all the good treatments that we have now are, are implemented and how we can then better try to address the disease across the board. Of course, and there are always innovations, aren't there, in the treatment of uh, such diseases. Um, why should we be sort yeah. of excited about sort of the next big innovation in the sort of CVRM sphere? How could that really change things, do you feel? I think the most exciting thing, or there are many exciting things that are happening now in the cardiovascular, in the cardiovascular thing, field. Uh, I would say... The most exciting to me personally right now is that we are trying to, is that we are better understanding uh, causes, disease drivers that go across. So we are not just looking at diabetes or hypertension or heart failure or chronic kidney disease. We are getting to the core of what's underlying all these things. Because people are not just turning up with diabetes or with chronic kidney disease. They are absolutely vast majority of these patients are having a little bit of all of these things. And we are, we are getting to a place where we are understanding the underlying causes. And we are better at sort of uh, identifying that and treating that. In addition to that, to that we are uh, getting more into personalized medicine targeted medicine, trying to understand the individual drivers in individual patients. So not only will we understand how these diseases are linked to each other, we will be better at understanding why you as a patient have your, your uh, combination of diseases or what's driving disease in you so that we can better uh, give you exactly the treatment that you need to have a better life. And then the third thing I'll mention is sort of lots of exciting things happening when it comes to regeneration and cell therapy and, and hopefully we will be able to in the future regenerate tissue that, that has been destroyed as part of cardiovascular disease. So if you, for example, have had a heart attack and a myocardial infarction, the part of your heart has been, been sort of destroyed. We will find ways to sort of restore that yeah, as part of the cell therapies or, or um, and similar things. So these things I would say are the three most uh, exciting things to me as sort of a clinician and a scientist in this area. It sounds incredible, doesn't it? It's incre It's just amazing sort of what sort of potential medicine has. It almost seems limitless, doesn't it? And uh, I think um, when you mentioned there that sort of 
enhanced understanding of sort of commonalities, those overlaps between sort of different conditions in sort of cardiovascular, renal, metabolic conditions. That's sort of going to have an interesting sort of outlook for the future of treatments. And I do want to get onto that a little bit later. Uh, but first and foremost, I think it would be remiss of us if we didn't sort of factor the last two years into, discuss- into the discussion, the COVID-19 pandemic, of course, because that inevitably is going to have had an effect on sort of cardio disease, isn't it? Because everybody, all the healthcare services across the world sort of were rerouted to directly deal with COVID. And one of the big consequences we've seen here in the UK is that a lot of people weren't going to sort of get their checkups or get um, sort of examined for more routine conditions like heart disease. So all in all, how has the pandemic, from your perspective, actually affected that side of things? No, you are absolutely correct. That, that I think there are many reasons why why people with cardiovascular disease maybe did not sort of see that the doctors maybe they didn't want to bother the the healthcare professionals or maybe they were afraid of, of catching COVID themselves or or maybe they think would think that that the disease that they had wasn't as important as a sort of the COVID disorder that disease that, that uh, people at the hospital were. So I think all these things would then lead to patients not taking care of themselves as they maybe should have, or getting to the to, to the healthcare professional for the, the, the signs and symptoms that, that, that they had. And that will, of course, have an impact longer term uh, if, if people are, are not uh, taking care of their chronic disorders, but, but instead, instead just sort of the more the more acute ones. So I think it's really important that that, that uh, people get back to their checkups uh, and cancer checkups, but also sort of cardiovascular checkups, and making sure that that we can can get on on top of of this this again. I think this is incredibly important. I will say from a, from a um, from an AstraZeneca perspective and from what I do a day-to-day perspective, it has been much, much more difficult to, to conduct clinical trials for the same reasons that patients might not want to come to the healthcare professional and, and, and so forth. And if we can't, if, if we can't do high-quality clinical research, we cannot get better treatment out in the future. So also the pace at which new clinical development will happen and new treatments will come to patients has also been hampered by the fact that it has been and continues to be incredibly hard to, to do clinical research in the COVID timeframe, if you like. Yeah, it's had a lot of impact, hasn't it? Um, you mentioned there as well the fact yeah. that people are sort of less willing to take part in clinical trials because they're worried about sort of the risk factor there. We've talked about people sort of not going for routine checkups. And I suppose there might even be an argument for the facts that the pandemic has actually sort of led more people into ill health, um, not directly because of COVID, but more because of maybe sort of COVID associated restrictions. So if we look at lockdown, for instance, we've seen a lot of people with declining mental health for per se. And maybe their lifestyle choices haven't been the best during that particular time. And of course, if you're drinking a lot, if you're eating a lot and you're not doing a great deal of exercise because you can't get out of the house, for instance, that also has an effect on your health, doesn't it? And that can also sort of drive these conditions forward. 
you are absolutely right. And I think we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg of, of that. And I think it, it would be, be interesting and, and probably a bit depressing. It's depressing looking at the total impact of the COVID pandemic. And I'm absolutely convinced that you are right, that it, it will be much, much broader than just uh, what the, COVID, the infection itself did to us and, and post-COVID, etc., long, long COVID, etc. But also that, then not being able to exercise, not doing your, uh, your check-ups and the mental disorders, etc. I think this will have a long-lasting impact on 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 many of us maybe an entire generation exactly right and uh, we'll see of course um as the sort of fog starts to clear on that just what impact how profound that really is going to uh, to be in the uh, the future and uh, talking about the future just to sort of get back onto the other side of treatment just before we wrap things up i did want to sort of address what i sort of talked about earlier that kind of overlapping of understanding of commonalities between sort of cvrm conditions so considering that a lot of these things do share things in common and do often overlap so say for instance there's links between hypertension and diabetes as you've mentioned the focus of treatments is now shifting towards not just addressing a single disease or condition at one time, but actually overlapping disease areas and risk factors. You're sort of giving people kind of almost multiple treatments to address multiple things at the same time. Do you think that that's going to be sort of the future for medicine moving forward, that kind of interconnected treatment? Yes, I, I definitely think that that's the, the, the case. As we are learning more on the science around the disease drivers, uh, we will much better understand how different disorders are interconnected and we will also better understand what's driving disease in, individu in individuals. So it's both going to be more interconnected and it's going to be more individualized in the, in the end. So the way that, that diseases are, are so, so, so uh, bucketed today, if you, li if you, if you like, Quite often, it has historical reasons. Uh, you, you call something diabetes because you had high blood glucose and, and you had glucose in, in your urine without, from the beginning, understanding why that was happening and without knowing that it was linked to other things. Uh, if we had known all the biology and the science from the beginning, we would probably have described things differently. And that's what we are getting to now. The, biological interconnectivity between different disorders, but also how this can look different in different individuals. Two people that have diabetes and hypertension and, and uh, heart disease, for example, could have different drivers for this, and, and, uh, and there could be different sets of, of treatments that would be good for them in the end. And that's what, what we are... are Focusing our research on, and that's what we are learning more around, and that's where the treatment will be heading in, in the future. Yeah, of course, and there's plenty of research and plenty of learning to be done in the uh, the development um, of that uh, for sure. Um, and obviously that is going to take some time, but just uh, finally, um, Elizabeth, before we finish up on the uh, the programme today, if we were to just look at the uh, the next 12 months, from your sort of science and research perspective, 
what are you hoping to achieve over the course of uh, this year? By this time in 2023, what would you really like to uh, like to have accomplished? It's a good it's a good question. It, it, most things don't happen that fast mm. in, in in this area. Uh, I will say that one thing I'm really really proud of and looking forward to is, is that, that there is one treatment SGLT2 inhibitors, and we have one of those. It's called Forsiga, uh, and they the, the studies that we are doing there are really looking at at uh, different. Um, diseases linked to diabetes mm. uh, and we have one study that called the liver uh, which is with procedure in patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and these results will read out this year uh, and uh, i am very excited about that and really looking forward to that and the reason why i am that is because this is studying something that was for diabetes from the beginning and now looking into to um, a, another disorder, if you like. Sounds absolutely amazing. And I do, of course, wish you all the uh, the luck in the world in sort of making uh, that endeavour successful, um, Elizabeth. Um, it's been an immense pleasure having you joining us on the uh, the show today, uh, by all means. And um, I think it would be fantastic once we start to see how things are developing over the next few months, years, perhaps, to even at some point in future catch up on the show just to sort of see how things are, uh, are coming along if possible. Yes, thank you, Scott, and it was fantastic talking to, to you. You very, very inspiring, yeah, and very happy to, to do that moving forward, of course. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. And um, until then, um, Elizabeth, by all means, please do continue to uh, take care and stay safe with all still going on in the world as well. Yeah, thank you. It was an immense pleasure welcoming AstraZeneca's Elizabeth Bjork onto today's show, and I do hope that everybody tuning in thoroughly enjoyed the interview today. Um, If you've been listening in and you happen to head up your own business or organisation with its own story of success and innovation to share, then by all means, we here at the Leaders' Council want to hear from you. So why not apply to be on the show yourself via leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Until next time, to every single one of our listeners out there, please do take care and goodbye.